whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. I have George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and very excited to be speaking with the guest I have on the podcast with me this week. He's been uh, a big name in the field of UFOs or UAPs over the last couple of years since an article he co-published with Leslie Keane and Helen Cooper came out in December 2017. I've got distinguished lecturer, award-winning journalist and author of many books including the most recent the Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Joining me now is Ralph Blumenthal. Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be here. It's great to finally speak to you. You're someone I've been kind of keeping an eye on for a while, like many of us have that have got an interest in, in UFO or UAPs. And obviously your work, you, you've just told me on our previous chat that you were with the New York Times for, was it over 40 years, you said? Yes, 45 years. And that's a huge, reputable media juggernaut especially outside the u.s it's really well known as well so for you to be publishing what you've done with your colleagues on the subject at that level has been you know greatly appreciated by people like myself and and so many others as well so thank you for a for a kickoff um ralph so you your name came onto the scene for me and so many other people in december 2017 when you co-published the article in the new york times with helene cooper and leslie kane like i said did you expect that article to have the lasting impact that it has had? Uh, no, we really didn't. Uh, it came at the right time. I think the public was ready for a breakthrough. Uh, the government, I believe, was also ready for a breakthrough, and it gave them some confidence to uh, start uh, you know, coming clean or cleaner on the subject. Um, but uh, we knew it was a good story. We didn't really know how it would change the paradigm. Had you ever tried to publish an article like this in the past, whether it was with Leslie and Helen or other, others before that? No, not on UFOs. I mean, I've, you know, in 45 years at the New York Times, I published a lot of articles, investigative articles, some controversial articles, um, all kinds of subjects, uh, uh, but mostly on, uh, you know, very well-grounded earthly subjects like uh, uh, the mafia, Nazi war criminals, um, uh, corruption, politicians, uh, government, etc., cetera, uh, the arts. So I, I hadn't ventured into this field before, but we, uh, Helene, I mean, uh, Leslie got a tip that um, uh, something was going on in Washington, and she went down there and found that uh, there had been this um, secret Pentagon office uh, investigating UFOs, which no one knew about, called ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Um, and, um, so, uh, you know, we talked about it, we brought it to the New York times. Uh, they loved the story. Everything was on the record. Uh, we had the head of the program who was resigning because he wasn't getting enough support from the defense department. 
so we, we, we knew we had a good story. And the Times uh, put it on the front page that Sunday, so it got a huge reaction. You've made that sound really easy, but given the nature of the subject, and it's obviously been reported on very seriously, very well, you're still ultimately talking about something that has the stigma of decades of aliens, little green men, flying saucers. Was there much pushback at all, even though they, they did like the story and getting that over the line? Well, we weren't talking about aliens. Uh, that's a whole other uh, issue that would take a lot you know, more proof and more proof than we really have to, to get it into the New York Times. But the UFO issue uh, was, was much simpler because there were Navy videos that we got for the first time that showed these objects were real. The Navy had recorded uh, them on, um, on radar and there were th- thermal in- imaging pictures of them. There were even, these objects were eyeballed by various uh, fighter pilots who talked about it. So, um, this was really the first time we got confirmation that these objects were physically real. Uh, we don't know anything about them, uh, where they come from, who's in charge, uh, how they you know, perform their extraordinary aerodynamics. But at least we knew for the first time that they were physical and real. And uh, as I said, we had everything on the record. We had documents. Um, we had the Navy videos. So given all that, it was not a hard sell to the New York Times. Was there anything that you almost managed to get into the article that you, any of the three of you really wanted to, but it just didn't quite make it for any sort of reason? Or was that the, the full body of work? Well, we, we published a number of articles. We went on from there to talk about um, uh, some of the pilots who had the sightings. We interviewed them, and then we did a third article on briefings of uh, um, congressional committees, um, on, on possible materials that have been recovered. So, um, uh, you know, there's always stuff you, you gather as a journalist that um, you try to get into a story, but that editors think is not, um, you know, su- sufficiently um, documented. So there's the usual give and take. We're used to that. You know, we're professional journalists. So, but there was nothing that you know, we were dying to get into the paper that they wouldn't let us print. Uh, it was just a question of deciding, you know, what was sufficiently backed up. And as I said, we always had on-the-record sources. Um, we always came with documents. We knew what was required. So um, I can't say that, um, yeah, as I said, we, we didn't get everything in the paper that uh, we, we gathered, but we never do. That's really good to hear. Now, you, you mentioned those follow-up articles as well, which are equally as important because you're you're adding to that original piece of work. Now, the first article in December 2017 arrived with a lot of surprise and a huge, huge fanfare, and especially to people who follow UFOs. The follow-up articles, particularly the one in July 2020, um, got a little bit of hype online as the the idea that the story was coming seemed to break and there was a lot of hype from a few people online that talked about potential crash retrieval programs and what may or may not be included in the article. Do you feel that hype preceding the article hampered what eventually came out or did it have any impact at all? It did have an impact and it, and it did uh, impede us because Uh, All that chatter on the internet about what the article would say and the people we were talking to um, was a major distraction. Um, uh, It raised expectations uh, beyond what, you know, we were 
prepared to fulfill in terms of you know documentation. So it was it was very difficult operating in that environment. I mean, the internet is a huge echo chamber, and people pick up things, and there's rumors, and um, it was very difficult to contact sources and and get their uh, you know candid responses, knowing that everything you know, was going to be uh, scrutinized and, and, and uh, exaggerated and, uh, you know, um, it, it made it, made it very difficult, but we stuck to what we were there to do. We, we kept our eye on the ball and um, the article was fine. Um, uh, you know, uh, as I say, there's always more material you gather that you, you can't get in uh, because of space or because you don't have the, the backup that you really want. But, um, it did not help that everything was being picked apart. What would your advice be to people online? And it was particularly Twitter. That's what we're talking about here. And that's something that I'm on constantly as well. What would your advice be to those that are looking forward to people like yourself producing this work about not getting too excited or too hyped up before an article comes out? Well, you know, uh, what you can say as a blogger and what you can say in the New York Times is not necessarily the same thing. Um, the, you know, the New York Times has the reputation it has because uh, it, it is conservative. It only, you know, covers things that can be verified. There's no room for speculation. There's no room for anonymous sources. If it's not, you know, national security reporting is somewhat different. You always have to take information, you know, um, uh, anonymously in, in, in cases like that. People don't talk on the record. But in other stories, you reduce the the the, uh, the credibility if you don't have uh, people on the record speaking with their real names. So you've got to, you know, give uh, understand that the New York Times is a special kind of paper, and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they they stick to you know very hard reporting and and, and hard facts that can be verified. So. Um, it, it doesn't help them to be, uh, you know, um, throwing out ideas and speculation of what they should be covering and why don't they do it this way and why didn't they talk about say this or that. Um, it, it's a different standard of, of, uh, of proof uh, for the New York Times and uh, people should understand that. Now, the, the hype surrounded the potential disclosure of a crash retrieval or crash retrieval programs that may or may not have existed, particularly within the U.S. government. Did that ever, and I'm asking, was there any smoke where there was fire? Was that something that was ever a possibility? Well, the truth is that though, that um, that's one of the areas that remains highly classified. Uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, the government uh, does not uh, discuss, has not put out documents about any materials that may or may not have been recovered, any crashes that may have been you know, documented. So you're dealing with an area here that is still largely classified, and we can't, you know, get into the business of uh, of uh, uh, publicizing um, uh, classified documents. We don't do that in the New York Times unless there's some kind of overriding, compelling, you know, public interest reason to do it. Uh, we don't just put out things that are classified for the fun of doing it. Um, so we were very restricted in what we what we able to get, uh, what we're able to find in the first place, and once we find it, maybe uh, talking to people, uh, what we're able to 
you know, to publish. So, um, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of smoke, uh, but uh, how much fire there is uh, is very difficult to, to determine considering how much of that area is classified. Do you think there is an amount of source material or evidence you could take to the New York Times or an editor there that they would run a headline that said something like crash retrieval programs or is that still too out there a subject? Well, I mean, theoretically they would, but it, you know, it depends on what you can get on the, on the record. And uh, in this field, as you probably know, a lot of documents are dubious. Even things that look authentic have been tampered with. Uh, the government has a long history of, of disinformation um, in this field. They put out things that are not accurate in order to maybe mislead adversaries uh, to put the best face on it. Um, so uh, it's a very difficult, uh, you know, area. And uh, even a document, when you think you have documentation, uh, it, it may not be accurate. So, um, you know, I don't know what, when we'll see a headline, like you said, in the New York Times, but it's got to depend on, on what we can confirm. And maybe someday, you know, we can do that. And one more question on that subject before we get on to your book. Are we any closer to having another article? published by yourself or others on the subject in the New York Times? Well, I can't talk about, you know, what we're doing now, but we, we're always on the lookout for more news to report. It's a field, obviously, that interests us. It interests the New York Times. And um, so people will just have to be patient. We're doing reporting all the time, and uh, we'll see. Well, listen, the work you're doing, and Leslie and Helen and others, is really appreciated by myself and, and many others in the community as well. So so don't let up. as greatly appreciated. That leads me on to your book, Ralph. So your recent book, as I mentioned at the start, The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science and the Passion of John Mack. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the book and how it came about? And just for those unaware, who was John Mack? Okay, so uh, John Mack was a Harvard psychiatrist, very esteemed. Uh, um, he had written uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of, of Lawrence of Arabia he had written books on nightmares. He had written books on childhood development, on a, a teenage suicide. Very accomplished. And um, through a series of circumstances that I outline in the book, um, he became aware in 1990 that people of all different backgrounds and ages were coming forward with stories of interactions with alien, alien beings, uh, being taken onto spacecraft, uh, often for bizarre pseudo-medical experiments, sometimes with a reproductive purpose to produce a, a hybrid race. Uh, women uh, were harvest, uh, getting their eggs harvested and men had their sperm taken for, uh, for the production of these hybrid beings. Um, these were the stories people were telling. And he was um, fascinated as a psychiatrist. And the first thing he wanted to know were these people sane. And once he concluded that they were absolutely sane and that they were not fabricating these stories, they were not, you know, making them up, they were not hoaxing the public, they were in fact quite shy about what had happened and, and, and quite fearful, um, he decided to investigate it. So that's the basic premise of the book, how this eminent scientist got uh, captivated, I like to say, not captured, <laughs> uh, but captivated by this subject, uh, which was a, you know, subject that provoked a lot of ridicule at Harvard and, and elsewhere. But he was courageous enough to pursue it because it really demands answers. 
we, to this day, it's a mystery. And um, uh, so that's what got me interested. I came across one of his books and um, I was also enthralled by the idea that this eminent uh, psychiatrist, Harvard, pillar of the Harvard establishment would get involved in a subject like this. So I, I was captivated like he was and, and followed his career. And I got access to all his private papers and his archives and his articles and his videos and um, worked for 16 years on this book. Why now is it just it's taken you the 16 years to be happy with the work to release it? Or do you think the timing has played a part in that as to what's going on just now in the world? No, I didn't time it for any particular purpose. I, I started writing it after uh, John Mack was run down in London. He was uh, killed in a, a car accident by a, a man who had too much to drink. There was no conspiracy. It was not an assassination as the rumor mill uh, in, uh, initially had it. Um, uh, he was just uh, looked the wrong way as Americans do in London. And uh, that's when I decided I was going to you know, spend more time looking into his, his life. And it took me a while to get the family to give me access to all his papers, which they did exclusively. And, um, and it just took, you know, it was a complicated story. I went through many, many drafts because I had to decide, you know, what was, uh, what was real in the story, what was worth publishing, uh, how much to credit his research, how much to be independent. And it was a difficult balancing act. Um, and uh, it's just the time it took. Uh, books take a lot of time. And uh, uh, I think it came out at a good time because there, there is great interest now in the whole subject. What was your perception of the alien abduction phenomenon before you wrote the book? Well, like most people, I guess I thought it was kind of crazy. Um, supermarket tabloid stuff. Um, and I didn't pay much attention to it. Um, but I mean, I had read science fiction when I was growing up, like, you know, a lot of people in my generation did, but I didn't think about it much. Um, and uh, I, I think everyone's first reaction when hearing this, as it was John Mack's first reaction, is this can't possibly be happening. But um, there's an epigram to my book that I use at the, at the very beginning where a, a, a British scientist in the 1870s was sent to uh, investigate some of these strange paranormal events, levitation and musical instruments that played themselves. And he was sent to debunk that. And he came back and he saw it with his own eyes that, you know, it was real, it was happening. And he wrote, uh, I never said it was possible. I only said it was real. And um, I guess that's the best way to describe this whole phenomenon. There's nothing about it that seems possible. And yet you listen to the accounts and you do the research and you hear what people say and how authentic the experience is to them. And in some cases is fragmentary you know, um, uh, independent evidence, other witnesses or marks on the body afterwards that can't be explained, or things like that, um, um, that you, you know, you, do, you come to understand that these things have happened on some, on some level of reality, not everyday reality, but um, in, in some dimension, these things actually physically happen. Was there any particular account you heard from one of the witnesses or within your research that you particularly stood out to you as being very powerful? Well, I interviewed a lot of experiencers um, for my research, and 
it was interesting that all the stories uh, were basically consistent in in the in the broad outlines, but they were all different uh, in details. So it was not as if they were all you know reading off the same playbook or reciting some script you know that they're all told to to follow. Um, the stories had an authenticity to them. The people I, uh, that I interviewed and that John Mack interviewed were also very credible people from all walks of life. Just the other day, I interviewed a paralegal um, with, uh, you know, a very solid grounding in, in research and, uh, you know, professional life. And she told me the most fantastic story about being, um, you know, abducted with a girlfriend from their van in, in Arizona. And... Um, that was witnessed uh, to some extent by her friend and uh, stories like this, uh, each, each one s- somewhat different, but again, basically consistent, uh, so powerful um, that um, uh, uh, yes, I'm convinced that, that there's something to it. I, I, I don't solve the mystery, but I don't write it off as, as a, uh, as an illusion. Was, was there anything you didn't manage to fit into the final draft of the book that you, you wish you had, or just for, for editing reasons you didn't manage to get it in there? Well, you know, book editors don't edit anymore. So I put in the book everything I wanted to put in. Nobody told me I couldn't put something in. Uh, there's always a limitation on space. And, you know, after a while, you can't keep telling, you know, different stories endlessly because the reader would be put to sleep and not by a by uh, alien beings, but, but just by the, you know, boredom of the same story. So you try to keep it lively by, you know, boiling down the stories. Um, so, uh, you know, I can't say that there's something that I wished I'd put into the book that I didn't get a chance to put in. I put in everything I wanted, but there's so much more to tell. Um, and that's why um, anybody who professes to be a skeptic or a debunker has to do the research. It's not enough to say, uh, oh, this is crazy. This can't be true. Of course it can't be true. Um, and yet these stories are so compelling um, and the fragmentary evidence is so convincing that you come away thinking, you know, there's, there's, there's something here that's penetrating our, our reality. Um, but, um, you know, you can't tell the whole the whole story of, of abduction in one book there's you have to do a lot of research, but I think I, I got the highlights and I got the best of John Mack story. Do you believe that there is an alien phenomenon at play when it comes to abductions or do you think it could be something else? Well, I, um, you know, I, I take the position that John Mack took uh, and I thought he, he was very wise in this. He said, Listen, if there's another explanation, I'm happy to hear it. Um, but he went through the whole phenomenon. He said the stories were consistent uh, and yet different enough to be individual, um, that they were told by all kinds of different people, including children as young as two years old, uh, who said things like, you know, little man, take me up in the sky. I fly in the sky. Um, so these, you, you, can, you couldn't say these kids were influenced by the books they had read or the movies they had seen. They were two years old. Um, uh, some of them came back with scars that they didn't remember having beforehand. There were areas outside their home that seemed to be uh, show signs of something heavy landing there. The fol- foliage was disturbed. Um, there were, in some cases, witnesses uh, uh, reporting people missing at a time when they 
felt themselves abducted. So putting all this um, together, um, um, it, it, it does present the picture that these people are telling the truth as they experienced it. And as John Mack said, um, he, he's never found an explanation better than that, than the obvious one that they were telling the truth on some level. Now, again, it's not an happening in everyday reality. You don't look outside the window and see people being abducted in spaceships landing. It's happening in some liminal reality, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, and it, it's, it's penetrating our reality in some ways we don't understand. But no other explanation has, has come, come forth to be as convincing as the ones that these people offered themselves. Have you ever had an experience or a sighting yourself of anything you couldn't explain? I have not, and neither did John Mack. And in a way, he said it helped him. Uh, he was disappointed, of course. He's, he had wished that uh, he could uh, have an experience. I guess he was curious, but, um, or at least a sighting, which he never had. Um, but then he reflected that, you know, he was then pure to pr uh, pursue it as a researcher and no one could accuse him of, you know, pr of, of having an agenda because he himself, you know, wanted to validate his own experience. He came to it completely as an outsider. And I did too. My whole career was as a, as a New York Times investigative reporter. Um, I've never had an abduction encounter. I've never spotted a UFO. Uh, maybe I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to think I would like to see it. But um, it doesn't happen to everybody, and that's part of the mystery. Uh, who are these people who are, uh, you know, singled out? Um, and, and why are some people, uh, you know, part of this mystery and others not? That's worth investigating, too, uh, you know, researchers said. Not just the people who are, you know, who see themselves as abductees, but what about all the others? Why aren't they part of that? So, um, but to answer your question, no, I, I'm pure like John Mack is pure. No, that, that's good to hear. And like you say, it gives you that fresh perspective and unbiased look at the subject as well. Now, we, I, at the podcast, received a lot of questions for you, but just given the time we've got, Ralph, I've just picked a couple of them out. Uh, the first one was from Jake, and he has read the book, and he said he loved it. And he wants to know if you could elaborate on John Mack's meeting with the Dalai Lama at all. He found that chapter particularly fascinating, and he was a bit miffed it ended so soon. <laughs> yes, I had a lot of You asked me what I didn't put in the book. I had a lot more on that meeting with the Dalai Lama because um, in 1992, John Mack had the opportunity to join a few uh, fellow psychiatrists and researchers, um, high-level professional people uh, uh, on, a, on a visit to the Dalai Lama in India. Uh, Dalai Lama, you know, being a very spiritual leader was interested in this phenomenon and um, he invited these people quite uh, confidentially secretly to meet with him so john mack went and he had a transcript made of the weeks uh, the week of discussions and i put uh, as much of that in my book as i could but not not everything some of it was repetitious but what was interesting is that um uh, the the group of, of visitors included uh, you know people from somewhat different academic backgrounds and they were examining the phenomenon and answering the Dalai Lama's questions from from different points of view and they're trying to figure out uh, you know how how this phenomenon came to be was it real um, can it be proven all these questions and and what were the things that the Dalai Lama had experienced in his culture 
and and in his life that you know would would um, parallel what these researchers had found. And it turned out the Dalai Lama was um, very familiar with these encounters. They they had somewhat different terminology in you know in Buddhism, um, but um, there were the, these there was a spiritual realm that they recognized that penetrated uh, our reality. And that uh, he, Dalai Lama, was quite familiar with the whole concept of small beings, uh, and um, he was he was very um, sympathetic to the accounts. Um, and it was just interesting. He spoke some English, the Dalai Lama, kind of broken English, and his questions were very good. And uh, and the efforts to come to you know agreement on what this phenomenon was was really quite fascinating. So. Uh, and I'm, I think I'm the only one who ever reported on that meeting because it was never publicly, uh, you know, announced. Do you think there's something to that religious aspect of the, the phenomenon or whatever's going on? We hear that in the halls of the, the US government, there are people who push back against this subject and the upcoming task force report that I will ask you about in a little while. Um because they believe it to be angelic or demonic in nature, and it's something that we shouldn't be discussing. Do you think through different religions this phenomenon is reported on in its own way? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are people in the government who don't like the subject. Um, we know, you know, that Lou, uh, Luis Elizondo, who is the head of the uh, advanced um, uh, air, uh, ATIP, uh, uh, Aerospace Threat Identification Program, uh, resigned because he wasn't getting enough support from the, from his uh, superiors at DOD to continue it, Defense Department. So, uh, yes, there's uh, pushback from the government, uh, which is why it's taken so long to acknowledge. Uh, I mean, uh, Project Blue Book was shut down in 1970. The government said, you know, nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> Just move on. And we know that the government has secretly been continuing its research but never acknowledged it. And now they're acknowledging it. So, um, yes, we, we, uh, we hear the same thing, that there are people in the government who, who are opposed to this. And just, just to dig into that a little bit more, Ralph, there's a difference between not liking the subject from a point of view of it's, it's the stigma and they don't want to talk about UFOs and, and what that may entail because they don't want to entertain the subject, yeah, I mean, as opposed to they don't like it for those religious beliefs. Do you think that it's that that really causes the issue or well, is it a mixture of both? Um, you know, it's hard to know. The, these things are never on the record, but we know from our sources that the difficulty in efforts to investigate this, to pursue this, uh, that has changed now, maybe partly because of the New York Times article in 2017, the government sees that uh, people are hungry for information, that there's really not a downside to uh, coming forward with acknowledgement, at least, that there's something worth investigating here. So there's now new directives uh, to Navy pilots uh, to uh, <clears throat> to report these uh, encounters, which they do now and which are part of the record. And this task force report uh, to the public is supposed to come out, you know, later this week, later this year, and maybe delayed. But um, so um, uh, I think things are moving in the right direction. Maybe too, maybe too slowly for you know my taste, other people's taste, but it's moving. Uh, Graham has the question, do you feel as though you've taken the subject of UAPs as far as it will go for the moment, or do you have unfinished business you would like to write about and have published? Well, I, I would never say I'm taking it as far as it can go. There's, there's still more, but again, everything has to be 
um, carefully vetted and and um, documented. And we only you know we only want to deal with on the record sources, which makes it very difficult. It's too easy to use you know anonymous sources, uh, which I think reduce the credibility of an article. You can say you know a high level government official said something, and it doesn't carry the same weight as putting a name onto it. So until we can do that, until we can get people on the record, um, we're not going to report on, on certain things. Uh, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we're working all the time and, you know, we've got our sources of information and uh, there's developments all the time uh, um, and, and we're following them. Peter has a question that, uh, given the knowledge of the subject that Ralph has and the so far unpublished source material, what is Ralph's personal view on the possibility of off-world technology being present here? Well, you know that's the uh, that that's the big question. If um, if these objects are are, do, are acting aerodynamically, like not not like no technology we have, the U.S. has, and probably no technology that our adversaries have, say the Russians, the Chinese, um, then you say, well, what are we left with? If, they, if they're not ours and they're not our adversaries, what are they? So far, the government won't answer that question. The obvious answer, logically, would seem to be, well, if it's not earthly, it's got to be off-earthly. But it's very hard to get a government um, official to say that on the record. Privately, they say that. Um, yes, that's the natural conclusion that if they don't, you know, if they're not from the earth, they've got to be from not, not on the earth, but uh, everyone's very afraid to say that officially. They want to just say it one step at a time. They don't, they don't think it's ours. It's not ours by all accounts. Um, and it'd be very unlikely that it would be our adversaries and that's how they leave it. Um, so, you know, as I say, there's a difference between what you hear from people and what you're able to report and what people will stand behind. And we have to take it one step at a time and only report what we can document with, uh, with you know, with names on the record. Just before I let you go, Ralph, it's been great speaking with you. I've got a bit of a quick fire round. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on just a couple of subjects that we've not quite touched on yet within the body of the podcast. And you can say as little or as much as you want about okay. each of them. Um, so the first one is your thoughts on last week's leaked photos and video footage of the pyramid UFOs. Uh, I'm aware of it. We'll, you know, we'll, I'm looking into it like a lot of other people looking into it. You know, not ready to pronounce on it yet, but I'm very aware of it. It's interesting, but it's going to take some more reporting. The next one is Bob Lazar and his story. I don't know. I haven't investigated that myself. I know credible people like Robert Bigelow have invested, you know, a lot of credibility, their own credibility in Bob Lazar. He told a very uh, provocative, sensational, astonishing story about, you know, working on uh, reverse engineered technology. Um, I, I, I haven't done enough of my own research to know, but I know it's, it's not a settled question. Do you prefer the term UFO or UAP? <laughs> You know, I think it's silly that uh, the government has shifted from UFO to UAP. Um, I think UA UFO has a kind of a stigma to it, just like, you know, flying saucers had. Um, but UFO is a perfectly good description, unidentified. We don't know what they are. They fly and we don't know what they are. Um, um, unidentified aerial phenomena, not much different. It's, it's a new word. Maybe the government feels, you know, more secure 
saying that than UFO, which has maybe been tainted by popular entertainment. But I, I think it's kind of silly. I, I stick with UFO as a perfectly good description because it says unidentified. Any thoughts on Skinwalker Ranch? Yeah, I was very taken with what I read about Skinwalker Ranch. I, I did a story on Robert Bigelow for the New York Times. I got into the whole Skinwalker question because he, he operated it, for, he bought it and operated it for a while. They found a lot of strange phenomenon there, uh, phenomena, uh, which you know astounded me when I read about it. It, uh, it was written about by credible people like George Knapp. Um, there was you know, footage made. Um, I think there's, uh, it, it's, it's an open question. I would not debunk it uh, at all as, as impossible. I think it's, uh, uh, intriguing. I, 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 you know, give weight to the people who've come out with these stories that call him Kelleher, uh, Robert Bigelow's, you know, right-hand man and Bigelow himself. Um, and people who investigated it, you know, gave very credible accounts of very strange things that happened there. So, um, uh, I would like to know more, but I certainly wouldn't uh, rule it out. Two more things, Ralph. The first one being the upcoming UAP task force report. Yeah, it's uh, we hear, you know, as has been reported, it's going to be delayed. It's not going to come out 180 days after passage of the Defense Authorization Act. There's too much yet to do, so it'll be delayed. We don't know how much will be public, how much will be classified. Uh, I think there are a lot of questions about it. But uh, I think at some point we'll see it, and I, I, I'm hoping it'll be interesting, uh, but we don't know too much at this point. Can I just ask you to elaborate on one thing? What would you like to see one thing realistically within that report? Well, I'd like to see the government um, you know, reveal more about what it knows of these objects, which it's been tracking, and Navy, uh, you know, pilots and ships have been recording on, uh, you know, various media, um, you know, their presence, their, 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 their FLIR images, there are uh, radar tracks, um, and I would like to hear from the government what, what they've, uh, re, you know, uh, documented about this, particularly the underwater stuff, the so-called USOs. I mean, these things seem to operate underwater as well. That's astounding. They're multimedia um, objects, so it's not just the skies. So um, I would like to, you know, to know more about what, what the government uh, has, has documented. And the last one, Ralph, is what does disclosure mean to you? Well, it has to, you know, it's a kind of a squishy term. I think most people take it to mean a full opening of uh, all government records uh, on encounters with, uh, you know, UFOs, UAP, possibly alien intelligence. Um, I think it's unlikely, given the government's uh, record so far. I think certain things the government wants to keep uh hidden in terms of, you know, giving, uh, um, you know, information to uh, earthly adversaries. Um, um, so I think that um, it's unlikely that the government just throw open its books and say, we're going to tell you everything we know. Um, so that's what disclosure means to some people. I think that's unrealistic. I think uh, more disclosure probably is a better way to describe it. And I think that that is more realistic. Ralph, just before you go, can you remind the listeners how they can follow you, follow your work, and also obviously buy the book Great, as well? Yeah. Um, my website is www.ralphblumenthal, R-A-L-P-H-B-L-U-M-E-N-T-H-A-L.com. 
Um, and there are links to the book there. There's uh, uh, appearances I've made, talks I've given, uh, my biography. The book is available on Amazon, um, uh, independent bookstores. I love it if you'd buy it from an independent bookstore because they're struggling. They need the business. Um, it's also on Kindle. Uh, so you can get it instantly, uh, download it for your iPhone or iPad. And um, I hope soon I think it'll be on audiobook. So if you were riding in your car and you want to listen, uh, at some point it'll be available there. So um, should be no problem getting a hold of it. Ralph, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I would love to have you back on down the line to, to discuss the topic a little bit. Thanks, further. Andy. A real pleasure. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFOUAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fall. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut down the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Thank you.